feel like we need to talk about the elephant in the room, Dominic. Which elephant? Your moustache. <laughs> All right. <laughs> What's going on with that? We had a meeting of our team this morning and it was suggested that you look a bit like an Italian cyclist or maybe a porn star from the 70s. Take your pick. At least I don't look like Hercule Poirot. Um, yeah, I was asked to have a moustache for the show I'm in at the moment, but actually... I've just done my last performance, so I could get rid of it, and I'm like a little bit attached to it. Isn't it getting coffee in it and stuff? No, it's quite short and a bit pathetic. (laughs) Well, anyway, it's very nice to have you and your moustache back. Well, you're not quite back, are you, yet? You are wrapping up this really long um, show that you've been doing over the last few weeks. Yes, I'm wrapping up my business on the farm, (laughs) saying goodbye to the chickens and the horses, and yeah, happy to be heading back to Amsterdam and ready to make some more podcasts with you, Katie. Yay! So ahead of our regular episodes returning next week, we are bringing you the second of two excellent guest episodes this week from a new podcast series that we really, really like. The series is called Millennial History, and it looks at major moments in the recent past as seen through the eyes of people who were just kids at the time. The series features really intimate, thought-provoking stories from around Europe, everywhere from Sicily to Northern Ireland, and this episode takes us to Romania. So we'll hand over to our friend Andrea Futz for the second episode of Millennial History, brought to you by Resonant Productions in collaboration with Are We Europe? This is the last of these episodes that you're going to hear from us at the Europeans. But if you're enjoying the series, do hit subscribe on the Millennial History feed. And you can find out more at millennialhistorypodcast.com. See you next week. I mean, I just find it really interesting. <laughs> Here. This is the talk about everything. Because there's just so much to talk about. Prove ourselves worthy of the majority. Millennial History. Welcome to Millennial History. In this podcast, we talk to millennials who lived big events in recent world history from up close. In this episode, the first of three, we meet Joanna and Katinka. They were both born in Romania during the final years of the dictatorship of Nicolae Ceausescu, which ended in 1989 on Christmas. At the time, there was a lack of everything in the country, combined with a harsh control of the secret police and rigid birth politics forcing women to have babies. Orphanages were full of children who had been severely deprived, not only of food, but also of human touch and contact. Katinka has always lived in Romania. Joanna was adopted from an orphanage when she was four years old. This is what you can expect. Communism in Romania was like a game. The concept was play the game. Everybody knew we were pretending. Everybody knew it was absurd. Yet everybody did it. Once again, surviving and being happy. I can't allow myself to have moral principles because they will be shaken and dismantled five times a day. People would expect that orphanages would be incredibly loud because children are incredibly loud. Loud sounds come out of them. <laughs> Piercing sounds <laughs> and these kinds of things. But you know, if you if you make a lot of sound and you don't get any response, you just stop making sound eventually because you learn that that's not, it's a waste of energy. People came and looked at children and then didn't pick them. So we also all developed ways to be super cute. <laughs> desirable, I think. And I I was, this was something that I had perfected. 
My name is Andrea Voets. I am a musical journalist. I am joined in the studio by composer and sound designer Luke Dean. All of the music that you will hear has been offered by musicians from Romania. Let's go. Now I know we lacked a lot. I mean, really lacked a lot and the scarcity of things was something that governed all throughout our childhood. But on the other hand, because we did not have the concept, we did not miss it. All these adults around me that were always worried, the sort of uh, background stress that was always there. Everything that we produced, that our industry produced, were sold outside. Nothing was kept within the country. Even if you had a fixed salary and everybody was employed, you would go to the meat shop or to the cheese shop and there was nothing there to be bought. That was the problem. Sometimes when the people heard that tomorrow we will bring chicken to the store, everybody woke up at 4 a.m. and went and stayed in line and hoped they would still get something. And in the 80s it got even worse. Electricity was rationalized. Like you had a card on which you, you had a ratio of bread or of sugar or of whatever, and you could not get more. For the first six years of my life, I lived in Constanza with my grandparents. My grandparents were extremely worried about what to feed me. Some people smuggled in some things, but you were risking it. You were risking it. It was extremely absurd, extremely little, you know, just to bring like biscuits. You were doing something extremely illegal, bringing biscuits. <laughs> was always a pressure on my grandparents to feed an infant to have enough powder milk. And you remember that worry from when you were so young? I remember that, so there is a very deep feeling of that, yes. My grandmother cleaned the house of some lawyers in an apartment building next to ours. I remember her investing like three, four hours every two, three days, doing a lot of work in order for me to get a piece of salami and a piece of white bread and, I don't know, a piece of cheese. Then an hour in which I can watch some Disney cartoons alongside the other kids. I was born in Brela, Romania. Uh, which is towards the east on the Danube. The first four years were spent in an orphanage, and then from age four, I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area. Because? Because I was adopted <laughs> by Americans.
we had multiple children to one crib. So you had crib mates. And I do remember I was with two other people. And I know and remember that I slept always with my head at their feet. Two children have their head at the bed, then the one in the middle has the head in the opposite direction. When I came to the States, and I still do it now, I used to turn around in bed. At some point in the night, I would have to switch around, and I would end up with my head at the foot of the bed. Three kids in a crib, three four-year-olds in a crib is very... I don't remember there being a lot of room. It was very cozy. You're in the crib a lot, so you, you get very close. You know, people ask me all the time, oh, do you want to meet your biological parents? I said, no, I don't want to meet my biological parents. I want to meet all the kids in the orphanage. I want to know what happened to them. We ate a lot of just slushy stuff. Yeah, mostly porridge type things. I, I know there was definitely soup because I requested this when I was a child still many times and by its Romanian name, Chorba. And when would they give it to you? I don't know, but it definitely wasn't a lot of food. I was terrified of the bath and the shower when I came to the States. So we know that we were probably all hosed down at the same time and probably with cold water or, or because a lot of us had behavioral issues, we wet the bed, of course, at night. And so then what happens, you probably just get sprayed down very quickly or not cleaned at all. When you live in an institutionalized environment as a child, despite the chaos, there is a certain rigidity and order to it. So at four years old, I could fold my clothes in a perfect square and stack them from the largest piece to the smallest piece and put my shoes on top at, at the end of my bed, squared center in the middle at the foot of the bed. You need this kind of organization and rigidity. But of course, children at that young age are not intellectually or motorically at the level in which they can do it with ease. It's instilled in a very aggressive way. So there, there is really not any room for making mistakes. It's much more accepted to take the back of the hand across a child's cheek or something than it would be in a westernized society where we tend to reason and logic with children. So as a child, of course, it was very easy for me, if I made a mistake with something, to have a total meltdown. You were equal to the input you brought within the community, within the society. If you didn't deliver, then you were marginalized. There was nothing you could do in order to have more than the norm, officially. You couldn't have more money, you couldn't have more land, you couldn't have anything more than the others. But on the other hand, it was encouraged to get by, to find, to be creative and find solutions in your own way. After the state believed you have enough money, you are not allowed to get more money. It was just as simple as that. You were not allowed to. And then what? They would have taken it from you. It's that simple. They allocated you a house, like an apartment. You only had the right to have a roof, 
above your head and enough food to get by. That was it. There was no leftist ideal that we should all share among each other what we produce. No. We produce for the state. The state gives us back enough for us to survive. But if we don't put on the work for whatever reasons, then we are not allowed to get this share. You have to earn it. And people were deceiving the system. Yes, we're saying, okay, I will go to my factory job that I will have for the rest of my life. But while I'm doing what you ask from it, I'm also gonna steal a part of it. People started getting creative. Everybody who worked in a factory stole. Everybody, it was common knowledge. That was the idea. If I can't buy salami from the store and I'm working into a factory that does salami, what am I going to do? I am going to take some salami home. In the 1940s, Romania was like more than 70% rural. They also took their land. A lot of people, especially the young ones, were just artificially moved into a city that was built around the factory. There was nothing natural in this becoming. There were still peasants who were now living in apartment buildings. In the 80s, they brought with them like a pig, you know, they grew a pig in the bathroom <laughs> or having some hens and some chickens on the balcony because they were just very used to that. And the neighbors could hear. Yes, because we were stuck into these little boxes extremely close to one another, so the privacy was something that basically lacked most of the times. When people wanted to have private conversation, they had to turn on the water, you know, let the water pour into the bathtub. So you have to share. <laughs> If you grow like a pig in your bathroom for the Christmas holidays, and at one point you have to burn the pig and you have to do that on the balcony or behind the apartment building or somewhere, in order to get your sausage, you had to let your neighbors onto that. Give them something. It was very intense because you always had to risk it. And you hope that somehow by offering a sort of privilege to the other, you would also earn his trust. And after eating the sausage you gave him, that person will not go to the Securitate and say, you know, my neighbor actually had the pig, ate three sausages and gave me one, but I came to you to tell you the truth because it's not fair toward the state. So this sort of hypocrisy created these very mixed feelings somehow. That huge opponent called the state who was causing us harm in different ways. This fear underneath it all, fear of the other, fear of the state, fear of consequences. If you do something out of the box, out of the limits, I remember this from my grandparents, yeah, that they never knew whom they could trust. So on one hand, you needed people to help you, you needed to exchange with your neighbor some sugar for some flour. But on the other hand, you never really knew if you could tell them the truth or give them access to your home. Somehow being very connected and somehow being very afraid of one another. That was the awkwardness. Afraid of really opening up. I think that was the source of my childhood. That was something that was not extremely perceivable back then, but somehow got into my very core texture, not being extremely trustful. 
always having a small moment of doubt. What does the other one really want? This tension between fear and need was functional. It encouraged a very individualistic approach on life. If you can't really trust anyone, then you should find ways of getting by for yourself. You know, it's sort of like Hunger Games. It's all, it's all based on alliances. So you never knew who was reporting against whom in your own community. So if a neighbor spoke against the communist regime, they could very easily be overheard by their other neighbor who would then report to the Securitate and you don't really know what happens to that person that spoke poorly of the government. If you instill enough fear in people, you, you don't have to do as much to control them actually because they control themselves. Communism in Romania was like a game. The concept was play the game. Everybody knew we were pretending. Everybody knew it was absurd. Yet, everybody did it. We had written in a lot of history books the harshest form of communism in Romania, the most controlling, the most intrusive in the personal life of the individual from the whole Eastern Bloc and the most absurd in its own because it was a, like a, a fake utopia of Ceausescu. In 1965, Ceausescu came to power and that was a period of about five years of relaxation. It seemed like sort of a democratic communism. And then something happened. Then he made a visit in 1971 to North Korea and to China. And he saw something that completely inspired him. He saw this cultural reform and this cult of the leader. And then something shifted. Something shifted in the mind of one uneducated person. And the whole faith of the country was changed. And he came back and he completely changed the measures. So then is where it became hard. Can't we do these big manifestations that they're doing in North Korea? Really? We can't do them. Can't we create throughout one night an entire collection of songs and, I don't know, poems that will praise the leader? Yes, we can. You know, out of these two hours of TV per day that we had, one hour was this Ceausescu speaking, saying something. On every magazine or every, I don't know, newspaper, there had to be a picture of Ceausescu and his wife. And the idea that we have to smile, we have to show we care, we have to look proud. I mean, I remember the teacher telling us, you have to look proud. I, I was five, I did not have the concept of pride. Proud of what? And then she said, you can think of whatever. Proud of the cakes your grandmother is doing. Proud that you were able to climb a tree. Proud of whatever. <laughs> what we want to see is that you're proud. <laughs> We had a limerick that was making fun of Ceausescu, basically. I just came home and while playing or doing something else, saying the limerick, 
I remember at one point my grandmother just coming, bursting basically into the room and said, what did you say? I did not actually understand what she was asking and I just repeated the limerick and she was... And she said, oh my God, stop it. You, you, you are not allowed to say this. Whom have you told this before? Have you told it to anybody else? They will think that we taught you that. That was a very forceful reaction. And she was extremely frightened and... Um, also nervous at the same time. She felt like yelling, but she was whispering. So it was like a silent yelling because even talking about that would have mean articulated particular words that were perceived as being dangerous. And how did you react? I got scared, I got scared, I got scared. I, I just started crying. You weren't supposed to attract attention to yourself. Everything that was outside the norm was judged as being shameful, wrongdoing. You were just supposed not to stand out, not to stand out as much as you can. Anybody my age, 33, had parents that grew up in the communist regime, so they knew very much this idea of staying home, stay to yourself. You know, interact with the government as little as possible because most interactions are not positive. You had a file at the Securitate, no matter who you are. And according to what was written in that file, you would have been like scarred for life and would have not have access, you know, to the universities, to the doctors, to whatever services you would have needed. Especially for people coming from intellectual families or from aristocracy before communism. People who had these unhealthy roots, like the family of my mother's. And this was a term, unhealthy roots? Yes. My grandmother and her sister were at the age where they should have gone to the university and they were forbidden to go to the university. They worked in the cement factory for five, six years. It was very easy for them, you know, to move you around like on a board game. So my grand-grandparents were half Jewish, half Hungarian. My grand-grandfather was a judge. And when the communist came, yeah, he was immediately sent to jail. Their property was taken away. You need to be punished. And it's not only you, it's your whole family. These uh, political jails were really aggressive and there were a lot of people who died within the jail, because either because of diseases, either because of beatings, either because they just exhausted them. There were these uh, huge building sites, like the channel between the Danube and the Black Sea, that was actually built by people who were confined or locked into jails because they were against the system. The force that was coming against them was too big, so we were mimicking Play the game, yes. 
pretend like we are. And sometimes it happened that you met some parents or I don't know, some people who believe the same thing. And then it was this elusive quality of communication. How throughout the words, throughout the lines, you can also let the other person know, you know it's absurd. Like reading the error between the words. Exactly. That's why theater was so huge in communism in Romania, because it was the most subversive art. Even throughout the censorship process, the reality on stage was a hyper-reality. It was like another state of consciousness. It was the, the free state of consciousness, the level where you can actually form your own ideas, your own thoughts, your own relationship with what's happening, because what was happening here was fake. Though it was like freezing cold in the theater halls, people were coming to catch that hint, to have that complicity, this live event that happened where the actor could just wink at the audience and say, you are not alone. Of course it is stupid. No, the Romanians do not just put children in orphanages and beat the living daylights out of them because that's their culture. I mean, you know, we, we forget that there were decades of communism and, and decades of birth control restrictions. You could not have any birth control. Basically, if you knew of anyone who was pregnant, you had to go to the Securitate and say, if you yourself were pregnant from early phases, you had to go to the police and declare that you are pregnant. There was community police that was going throughout the neighborhoods and asking people, do you know anybody who's pregnant? It was huge. In order to get an abortion within communism, you had to have like five children already. The women who had more than four children were considered heroes, female heroes. And you get like a decoration as if you were in the war or something like this. And the problem was that, uh, of course, women still wanted to do abortions and they were doing them illegally. It was a really sick environment, let's put it like this, and very traumatic for women. My mother told me that because she remained pregnant with me when she was really young, she felt like she wasn't prepared and she wanted to do an abortion and then she had this horrible experience. I mean, she found a doctor who said, okay, I would risk it and perform this abortion on you. But before doing it, you have to come to the hospital, see the atmosphere and see what it can happen. And she went to the hospital and there was a woman who was in labor and who was bleeding. So it was definitely an illegal abortion went wrong. And the doctors were not allowed to help her until she would have said to the people from the Securitate the name of the person who tried to help her. And that was an extremely 
strong uh, experience that had a huge impact on my mother and this is why she did not have an abortion. And that's why you are here today. And that's why I'm here today, yes. Are there like colors or sensations that you associate with your first four years in life? Oh, <laughs> that's a tricky one. The colors are all very uh, hazy, you know, like the like a bit like a fog. So if you were to take a, any sort of color palette palette and put it behind a, a fog screen. This is a bit what it looks like to me. People would expect that orphanages would be incredibly loud because children are incredibly loud. Loud sounds come out of them. <laughs> Piercing sounds <laughs> and these kinds of things. But you know, if you if you make a lot of sound and you don't get any response, you just stop making sound eventually because you learn that that's not it's a waste of energy. You learn what what the what the minimal that you need to survive and nothing more. You learn not to ask for anything more than that because that's that's extra energy that's expended. It's all about conserving emotional energy lasting until the next meal, lasting until the next, you know, moment that you get um, meaningful human interaction. Children that were catatonic, like what, what would that look like? Do you remember that? I mean, they're very, you know, they don't react to a lot of input around them. They tend to do a lot of self-soothing. I think they call this the thousand mile stare also for war veterans. It's just blank. It's that same thing of sort of just going into a place that's completely unaffected by your surroundings so that you're not having to react emotionally to what's going on around you. People did not know what to wish for. Okay, we don't like this and we want to change it to that. That did not exist. We couldn't go back and we couldn't imagine what was further. So we were stuck in the moment. This is reality, and if I question, I get into discomfort. It's even harder for me. So my way of coping it is just accepting. Accepting everything as it is, even if it's not representative for me, but never seeing myself as an agent of change. Just part of a system. That identity was mutilated. The people who were aware that what is happening was wrong were very few. Very few. You felt completely alone. I mean, if you accepted this awareness, you felt completely alone. And everything around you punished you somehow. The people, the system, whatever. I saw what it did to my grandparents. I mean, they were all genuinely good people. Genuinely good people. But that their values were perverted. That sense of right and wrong, you know? And they did not know that about themselves. That was extremely painful. That helplessness, accepting that they're not doing anything better because they honestly have no idea how that feels or how that could be done. They became the products of some concepts. And that was 
far more forceful than their own personal identity. If you deprive an, a large enough group of people with the basics for long enough, they get very efficient with their emotional needs. The analogy that I use also for people is a pressure cooker. If you put enough circumstances and people into a situation where they cannot get out easily, you know, the lock lid and everything and the steam is in there and it pushes down, you really change what's inside that pressure cooker. It's not what it was when it went in there. We know what happened to a lot of the children, but we, we very often leave out of the discussion the caretakers. Be it a weakness, but I just have this very strong desire to make sure that we are also acknowledging that there are multiple people that are victims here too. This is also a really, I think, traumatizing thing to be a caretaker of children and not be properly trained, not have the proper resources but also not have the emotional training. I think my beginning, for whatever reason, for me it's instilled a very strong, just a strong desire to always understand other people. Not, not only how what they do affects me, but why, you know, why they do what they do. They're not just running around the orphanage with a cigarette butt in their hand, like playing games. I, you know, I, in these pressure cooker environments, the smallest thing can, can trigger punishment. And, and so, so I think most of the time they, they tried to take care of us and sometimes that wasn't always positive. It's once again surviving and being happy. I can't allow myself to have moral principles because they will be shaken and dismantled five times a day. And then I become numb, of course. I say, I'm just not going to be reactive. And there are only a few people who, I mean, those are the resistance, the people who survived keeping their moral conscience, which meant continuous suffering. That's the only thing that I have a hard time getting my head around. You could go to an orphanage, meet a child, and say, no, I don't want this one. People came and looked at children and then didn't pick them. I mean, it's like being in a pet store. So all you need to do is look at a cage of seven kittens, and you have the same... You have the same... You know, which kitten gets picked? Oh, the kitten that climbs up and nuzzles into your neck first. That's the one that gets picked. You know, nobody ever picks the cat that's sulking on the kitten that's sulking on the side and sort of not interested. Um, so we also all developed ways to be super cute and <laughs> desirable, I think. And I, I was, this was something that I had perfected. <laughs> so I was, yes, apparently I was very adorable. The famous quote in my family from my when my adoptive father is, if I have to go into one more poor orphanage and see a starving child, I'm going to go mad. He was very, he was affected, I think, also coming from the Romanian community himself. He was, he was affected by this, seeing this severe deprivation and poverty. I suppose if I could ask them, yeah, what's the deal? How did you guys decide? How do you decide for a kid? I suppose it's 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 a bit of a compliment that that my adoptive parents chose me. <laughs>
But it also means that they actually met other kids and said, no, we don't like this kid. I mean, how do you know that you don't like a kid? I mean, so you're picking a book by its cover, by the first sentence. Uh, but what happens if the book only gets very good in the last chapter? <laughs> This show was brought to you by Resonate Productions. We make musical journalism about emotional blind spots. Many thanks to all the musicians who donated their songs to help to tell this story. Cosima Opartan, Surorile Oshoyanu, Subkarpati, Karpov Not Kasparov, Musai Soundworks, Diana Rotaru, Temple Invisible, Alex Simon Quintet and Robin and the Backstabbers. You can find all of them on facebook.com slash musicaljournalism. In the next episode, Joanna and Katinka talk us through the revolution, the wild west of the 90s and the way that ordinary people, families and communities navigate such massive changes. See you next time. Ai grijă de nume de tău, e ultimul rămas. Era o copilă nuntă, părinți cu timp de fir, avioane de vârtie, treceau să-l împeciu. Un înger de asinu, privind înfricidări, ce frumoase lume, ce foame și ce gel.